Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. Well, we've made it to December of 2021, the end of another year. It's a time to give thanks, a time to celebrate, and a time to reflect. In that spirit, we're here today to reflect on the extraordinary careers of two public health leaders in Arizona, Debbie McCune Davis and Alan Jerzvig, both of whom will soon be transitioning to their next chapter, retirement. But before they ride off into the sunset, or fly to Europe, or drive into the mountains, we wanted to take a few minutes to highlight these two individuals who have made an indelible mark on Arizona's public health system. So sit back and enjoy these reflections in community health. Thank you to Debbie McCune Davis and Alan Jerzvig for joining us today on the Vitalist Spark podcast. We are thrilled to have you. For our audience who don't know Debbie and Alan, Debbie is the executive director of the Arizona Partnership for Immunizations, and she spent a little bit of time, i.e. close to 30 years, I believe is the number, with the Arizona legislature, both as a state representative and a state senator. And Mr. Alan Jerzvig is currently the Director of Outreach and Enrollment at the Arizona Alliance for Community Health Centers. He has also helped to oversee Keogh Health Connection, a local nonprofit, as well as the Arizona and Nevada chapter of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and United Blood Services. So has had quite the journey. And the reason we are here today is because these two pillars in community health are retiring, are moving on to their next chapter in life that doesn't involve daily meetings and maybe a little bit more flexibility to be with children and grandchildren and family and other friends. So thank you both so much for being here. Let's talk about retirement, the big R word that is rapidly approaching each of you. I think I think your last days are in the next few weeks, right, Alan? I'm turning in my spurs on the 14th, or maybe it's a laptop, I forget, on the 14th. And Debbie, when are you turning in your laptop? I'm transitioning as of the end of December from employee to consultant. There's still a little bit of transitional work to be done. Retirement is in view, but it's taking one step at a time. When you think about that word, when you think about retirement, what comes to you? What is it like to be so close to this impressive feat that you're both about to embark upon? Well, for me, it's not an easy step to take. You know, I, I like my work very much. It doesn't feel like work, but it's time for others to take the responsibilities. So the way I see retirement is it gives me more flexibility and I can still have impact in the community. I just won't have to deal with the day-to-day responsibilities. That's an excellent way of putting it, Debbie, and I feel the same way. Fewer meetings and no alarm clock, that kind of sets the tone of flexibility. And as Debbie already has her first engagement lined up, I'm discussing and talking because I hope to keep my hand in some grant writing and consulting, but with greater flexibility. No office, no commute. So this isn't a goodbye. This is a, we'll see you in a little bit, or we'll see you in a different capacity. <laughs> I think that's fair. Or less often for you, Marcus. You, you <laughs> won't have to put up with me as frequently. <laughs> and in our case, 
my husband and I love to travel and he's frustrated by the time restrictions that employment <laughs> puts on travel. So I think the other aspect of retirement is to be able to go and explore for greater lengths and more in-depth in other areas, learn more, see more, do more. We have a cruise booked. International travel is on our list. All right. I'm starting to get a little bit jealous because I've got a few years ahead of me still before I hopefully one day get to where, where the both of you are. Before we dive into some of the most memorable aspects of your careers, and both of you have plenty of them, let's think back to your first days. First days, first jobs. What was it like for Debbie McCune Davis to start off in the world of employment in the workforce? And what was it like? Who, who was Alan Jersvig and what did he first do for, for his first job? Well, in my case, as a senior in high school, I started working fast food. I think lots of, of, of young people did that, had other odd jobs, but really the first job that had impact on my career path was I got recruited as one of the first women in a insurance firm to sell life and health insurance. And it, it was really interesting to me because I had to go, I had to get licensed and I had to go through a training process. And my first day in the office, they handed me a schedule. And the schedule was I spent these, you know, X number of hours in the office. And then according to the schedule, go home. And while my spouse was making dinner, I was to review the study booklets that they had given me to prepare for the exam. The world was not uh, yet adapted to women in places that real work got done. So other, and I don't mean real work in that sense. I mean, structured work fitting into that environment. And Alan, what was your first job? I grew up on a farm uh, in the middle of the last century <laughs> in Northwestern Minnesota. So my first job but I did not get paid was feeding calves. And when you're just a little guy carrying a pail to try to get a calf to drink out of the pail, they butt their heads and they move and you end up with milk all over yourself instead of in the calf. Um, so growing up on a farm, I did many, many things, but my first actual paid job was as an electrician's helper. So that means you do all the grunt work in new construction or remodeling. Later on, I worked as a carpenter's helper and a plumber's helper. So I, as you know, Marcus, I've done extensive remodeling and construction in my different homes. So while it didn't perhaps prepare me for my professional career, it sure did prepare me in other ways. My question is about the leap that it takes to get from where you were to where you are now. And I know that that leap is not a single leap. It's iterative steps along the way. Debbie, talk about the trajectory from starting off in the world of insurance products to eventually getting into elected seats in a state legislature and ultimately overseeing an organization that's focused on immunizations throughout the state. I grew up in a really traditional setting. Mom and dad, my job was to go on to get higher education so that I could have a better life got my degree, went into this work environment that I described, and found that there really wasn't much support there for a married woman with two kids and career aspirations. I did the best I could and 
decided somewhere along the way, I'd been involved, my husband at the time had been in an elected office and knocking on people's doors in the evenings based on appointments to talk about insurance. I decided running for office was actually easier than selling life insurance (laughs) in an environment where the incentives were golf balls and sports equipment and rewards for for good performance. So I decided I could do more good in the community and ran for office. And in fact, in that first run for office, my husband had served as a Republican. I switched to Democrat and still prevailed in that first race. So young, age 27, jumped into the world of public service. And I think that ended up being a good fit for me. Really liked the connection to the community and having a chance to solve problems. Do you ever regret not being able to receive free golf balls and tees and swag? (laughs) I think in the legislature, you still get plenty of that. People bring you all sorts of things. Yeah, that was, that's a, that's just part of the transition. Alan, talk about your transition. It's quite the transition going from milking cows and helping on a farm to overseeing a number of different health programs and organizations. My path was certainly different than Debbie's, but here is some commonality. My first job out of college, selling life insurance for Sons of Norway, a fraternal organization. So I had to study and pass the test in Wisconsin at the time. And then I also held a life and health license in Arizona at one point too. So, you know, I was thinking back in your questions and growing up, I never had a strong sense of, I want to be this or that. I have a daughter that knew what she wanted to be when she was about 14. And that's what she is. That was not me. In college, I created a series of sessions called personal life skills for students, where I invited speakers to come in to talk about insurance and balancing a checkbook and those kind of things that students need eventually. And I worked in an internship program at that particular college, and that gave me a chance really to understand that I enjoyed programming, I enjoyed planning, and I enjoyed implementation. So while I was working in my master's in education counseling, I managed multiple dorms. So I had staff reporting to me, I was supervising. And what I realized is everybody I was working with that were my superiors were about my age. And it was a small liberal arts college. And so funerals were the only thing that were going to open any doors for me to move up. And literally, those people I worked for, they spent their entire careers and then retired. So I decided to look for something was of interest and something where I felt like I was doing something important for the community or something to help people. That's been my strongest sense, even though I didn't know what that meant. So I was hired by United Blood Services, and I traveled all over northwestern Minnesota and eastern North Dakota and South Dakota, organizing community blood drives. So I was a community organizer, but did not go into electric politics. So we traveled all over. I also, from there, was promoted to executive director in Texarkana, Texas. And it's an interesting thing to note that in 1980, in Texarkana, Texas, 
the 1960s had not gotten there yet. So culturally, my wife and I really, really encountered attitudes and beliefs and ideas that were just totally foreign to how we were raised. And long story short, I ended up then in Las Vegas, talk about another cultural change to live in Las Vegas. And in 1987, ended up here in Phoenix and was the executive director for United Blood Services for 14 years here in the Phoenix area. After 22 years with United Blood Services, now called Vital Lunt, moved here. And after 22 years, decided it was time to do something else in the nonprofit world. So I shifted over to traditional nonprofits where you had to raise money. And one thing led to another. That's kind of the quick background. I want to dive a little bit further into your mention of culture. There are cultural shifts throughout time. We're in 2021 right now. And both of you, I mean, in part, your formative years and your careers were in the late 70s and the 80s. What do you recall about the culture and its impact on your careers in those eras? Are there certain things that we today should remember about the culture from what seems like a long time ago, but really was only a few decades prior? For me, I sort of continued on a traditional path in some ways. My academic degree is in sociology. I viewed my role in the community as a sort of a community social worker, looking at problems that families faced and ways to solve those problems. It tried to be very observant and tried to tune in and stay in touch. But when I saw an opportunity to break down a barrier, I did. When I went to the legislature and they asked me what committee I wanted to serve on, I really wanted to serve on the human services committee, but instead I said finance and insurance. And really began to learn and understand the what I, I had already had some grounding from the licensing process and training, but it gave me the ability to learn how the laws worked and how that affected people in terms of acquiring wealth and protecting pensions and planning for the future. I didn't step back from those family issues. I've had my fingers in those <laughs> efforts in all of the time that I've been there. But I also did a stint in behavioral health and began to understand a little bit about people's behaviors and how patterns of behavior get set and how folks go. And when I was in the middle of that was right when the whole drug issues were coming up where it wasn't just in poor communities, but middle-class and upper-class families were finding their children with addictions and having real struggles with those problems. And each thing that I've done along the way, I've been able to learn more, sort of learn more in depth about the community I work in. And I can tell you that it's been really beneficial to me to take those lessons learned and carry them forward into each job opportunity that I had as I move forward. Speaking to the question of culture, I came from a very traditional family, five siblings. Our parents had not attended college, but all six of us went on to at least a bachelor's, if not advanced degrees, because that was the ethic. And it was an extremely homogenous community. Almost everyone there were Scandinavian ancestry. And the idea that 
community good, what's good for the community, what's good for your neighbors was on par with what's good for you and your family. So this sense of, you know, sacrificing for the greater good was just in the water. And, and my wife comes from the same background and very much the same kind of feeling. So we went through the 1960s learning about what was going on in other parts of the country that were not, that had greater diversity than we did. And when we moved to Texarkana, Texas in 1980, one of the first things that happened is that an employee said, you wouldn't hire one of them, would you? Because it was an all-white staff. And I literally got phone calls from the public asking if we kept the blood segregated on the shelves. Not just poke fun, you know, joke, but people were actually wondering. And it was hard for me to get my mind around it. I did the best we could, but the best news was we only spent 14 months, seven days, and 12 hours there. So, <laughs> um, and then we moved to Las Vegas, which talk about extremes, very diverse community, international community, even back then and even more so now. And it was easier for us to fit in because we could find like-minded people where in that small community on the border of Texas and Arkansas, it was extremely hard to find like-minded people that viewed the world through the lens of what happened in the 60s and 70s. So I'm glad that we've made progress over the years regarding culture, diversity, and equity. In our youth, or in my youth, we wanted change right away. I was very active politically, and we didn't want to wait. So now I understand change does happen, but it doesn't happen overnight. One of the questions that's coming to my mind, and Debbie, you kind of spurred this thought, is what's the lesson that you've learned over your career that you never sought out, that you look back and say, that was a really, really important lesson that I've learned? It was a young woman in an environment that where, where the men were clearly in charge. Women were there and present, but didn't have as much influence as needed. And I took great pride in being that mom in the conversation. And I really thought I fully understood what that meant, what the, you know, sort of what the, the burdens were. But one day I was invited to go along with some child advocates to a school in Southwest Phoenix to spend time observing the school nurse. And the school nurse explained to me what her job was and what she did every single day. And it was to look at the roster of what children did not show up for school that morning. And then to go, sometimes physically go, not just make a phone call, but go to the mobile home park that that family lived in. Because the reason the child didn't come to school was because the parents didn't come home the night before and they couldn't leave the youngest siblings in the house unattended. They were the functional adult in the household because the families were dealing with poverty, they were dealing with stress, they were dealing with 
economic discrimination. They were dealing with so many things. And it opened my eyes. That's one of those things you can't unsee. And it really opened my eyes to how challenging it is. We create expectations for children to grow up. Alan referenced that. My household was no different. We were expected to go on. But if we weren't laying the right foundation for every kid in this state, the chances of them succeeding was nil. And so the lesson I learned there was to stop making assumptions that everybody lives the way I live, that everybody has the opportunities that I've had and the stability that I've had. And even though I've had many challenges, that has always stayed with me, that what we think of as traditional role of a school nurse can be different than handing up medication to a child who has a headache. Boy, that one changed my way of looking at, at things a lot. Alan, when you think back to lessons learned that maybe you didn't intentionally seek out, does anything stick out in your mind? Well, a number of things do, but some of them run somewhat parallel to Debbie, and I guess that's reflective of our entering the workforce at a certain point. The timeline, two things relating to what Debbie said. My wife is a professional speech and language therapist, pathologist, worked in the schools and is now retired, but we've been married 48 years almost, but she would tell the stories. So I learned a long time ago that people in need never present with just one issue. It's not just that they needed an aspirin from the school nurse, because my wife would end up trying to deal with not just a kid's speech, but the gamut of human and social needs, whether it be drugs, behavioral, disability, living out of a car, whatever. So as my work has progressed from dealing in a wholesale sense or creating and providing blood to hospitals to now helping individual families enroll in affordable health insurance. Again, one of the things and the lessons I never intended to learn was that each person probably represents a multitude of issues they're dealing with. And the other lesson I've learned is even though our family did not come from wealth, we could have survived just on what we grew <laughs> and raised on the farm. I had it easy. Not only as Debbie was talking about breaking the glass ceiling or taking on roles that women didn't, didn't do before. I didn't have to face that. I had, I had it very easy, yet at the same time, I did learn and I tried to pass it on to staff members and people I've worked with that you have to look at an individual as a person that's coming from a situation that you don't know. You have no idea what they might be dealing with. So throughout your journeys, you have both had a number of successes. I want to take a little bit of time just to kind of highlight some of those successes and triumphs. And I know neither of you are ones to kind of sit back and brag, but I want to be able to hear about some of those successes. So when you reflect on your careers, what are the things that you remember being most proud of? things that you championed or something where you think that, you know, if there were somebody else in my seat 
they could have done a great job, but because of who you are and the ambition that you had, that something really blossomed based off of your work. Well, my best work came as a result of a couple of losses. I took myself out of the legislative environment after 16 years because the voters had just put term limits in. And I figured I would term limit myself and go and try to get some worldly experience. The campaign was was a good one, but it was in a year when my party did not do well. And I lost that campaign for uh, Arizona Corporation Commission. I got talked into running. It wasn't my idea, but it made sense. So I did it. The outcome left me without a plan. And it took me about 14 months to find employment after that. So first loss was the campaign. The second was a little bit of faith in myself, because when I talk to employers, they're looking at a resume and 16 years in the legislature didn't equate to anything when you're looking at how many years of experience you have in a certain way. And then somebody brought the idea of responding to an RFP for an immunization coalition. And March of Dimes asked me if I would do that for them. So I did. And that turned out to be another loss because I was informed after the fact that we didn't meet the basic requirements. Somewhere along the way, an administrator filed in eight copies instead of nine. And so they disqualified my proposal. But apparently somebody along the way had been impressed with that proposal and called me and asked if I would be willing to take on immunization coalition under the proposal that was accepted. And like I said, 14 months later, I was offered a job I have now, which is director of the Arizona Partnership for Immunization. Obviously, that is a a project that has grown into a movement that is now pretty well known for good work. And I'm very proud of that. In addition to that, I will have to tell you that I'm very proud of making payday lenders' lives miserable in Arizona because they exploit the very people that we're trying to help. I am proud of the work that I did with the medical community to establish a program called Baby Arizona, which provided better prenatal care services to women in Arizona. Proud of expanding Medicaid and kids care proud of the part I played in rewriting the statutes for the Department of Child Safety. But there's a caveat there in that I did not succeed in getting the term well-being into the statute. The hardcore folks who I was working with to rewrite that said, quote unquote, if you put in well-being, what that means is that's whether kids have a birthday party or not. They were pretty cynical and were pretty focused on safety and safety alone, not the things that kids need to thrive. So had good work come of my efforts. Very proud of being part of many of those things. Did none of them by myself. They all came with uh, great teams and and great coworkers. It's incredible. I feel like each one of those pieces that you mentioned, Debbie, deserves at the very least an entire one of these little podcast episodes to it. Just the fact that there are so many successes that you've helped to champion over the years. And one of them just so happened to be Medicaid expansion in the state of Arizona, which was an extremely heavy lift and we are still reaping the benefits from. So definitely deserves a lot more conversation. 
Alan, what about yourself? Things that you've been able to champion that you that you reflect on with pride? Well, there's a disclaimer coming from Norwegian and English Quaker roots. We don't talk about things like that. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of funny. It's almost like a part of the DNA. A couple thoughts. I was fortunate at a young age, married a very compassionate woman almost 48 years ago, and we've raised two wonderful daughters and have great grandkids. But she had a brother that served 28 years in the Minnesota legislature, both houses. And at about the time we were married, I had been asked to consider to make a run for a legislative seat. And my wife was very clear saying, you can be married or you can run for public office, but you can't be married to me and run for public office. So my triumph of making the right decision, because I would have never been in office for 48 years, because I had no money and I probably would have not won in that case anyway. But the, the one thing that I do take some pride in is that when I was in Nevada, it was apparent that Nevada law was not as it was for a number of other states. So I championed the idea of changing a law to lower the age of blood donation without parental permission. And I got it all the way and have a nice picture standing by the governor when he signed it. And so even though I didn't take that elective office career, I still made some differences. I also testified in front of a, a taxation committee where I thought I was going to have to push a bill, but they just made a change in definition and saved the organization I was running hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of time on, on an unnecessary tax. So those are some of the, the triumphs, but I just, in more current times, when I think of the fact that through my writing and work, we've brought in $15.8 million to Arizona from CMS and private grants to help people get covered. And I think of the hundreds of assisters, health application assisters that are working to help people get covered. We try to do a summation. We know that we've helped more than 200,000 people get coverage directly related to these grants. And 7 million of these dollars haven't even been spent yet. <laughs> so the fact that not only for 22 years that I help people in the sense of having blood on their shelf when they needed it for surgery, birth, accident, but then now helping people get the ticket so they can get care. And in this country, it shouldn't be the way it is, but it is. You need coverage. So feel pretty good about it. And I can't say enough about the wonderful people we've worked with, including Vitalist and people like Debbie, but also the people literally at the front lines that are just wonderful. Let's flip the script a little bit. Debbie alluded to this a little bit earlier. Biggest challenges in your career? Working with people whose philosophy is adverse to mine, trying to understand their perspective and trying to neutralize the things that I could so that we could work productively. I've been in environments where I was referred to behind the scenes as an infidel because 
my belief system was different. I mentioned the issue of child well-being. There's nothing more important to me than my kids and my grandkids and the future, and they have what they need. I always served in the minority in the legislature, and yet we did somehow manage to neutralize some of those forces. In Medicaid's a a good example, when it was time to do the expansion, we had to neutralize some pretty significant individuals. And those were real challenges. But I was on the right team when it was time to get the work done. And I, I think that's really it. I think you have to do what you can to understand the other perspectives in order to be able to move forward and to move around them to get things done. At TAPI right now, we're dealing with the the anti-vaxxers. I don't have to give any more detail than that. People who are not trusting, people who are not well-schooled in the sciences behind vaccines, or people who are more comfortable with their beliefs than with the information that's being shared. At every step, there's always a challenge, but it doesn't take you off the path. You just continue to move forward and rally the forces and keep going and hopefully get to the right outcomes. I wrote down some different things when I saw this question because one doesn't usually reflect very much. We're so busy doing. There's been a theme in my career, and that is trying to improve processes and procedures to make them more effective. And I've I've always liked the word effective, not efficient, because you can be efficient and still not be very effective. So back in the 80s, when I was running the blood center in Las Vegas, then I moved to Phoenix in 87, HIV and AIDS in the blood banking world and in the health community were the primary topic. And we faced constant challenges with misinformation, panic, and it directly impacted the work we were doing because of the relationship between blood and transmission of HIV. So within a very short time after moving to Arizona in 87, and I'm willing to bet that Debbie was in the legislature at the time, a state senator proposed a bill that to get a marriage license, you had to have a negative HIV test. And I got that senator over to the blood center in Scottsdale and spent a couple hours with the person, talking to him, showing him processes, and trying to explain that we were in a first-generation test, brand new. It's easy to imagine the first generation of testing for COVID. We knew it would improve. And there were significant numbers of false positives and false negatives. So Marcus, as a young married man, how would you like to go (laughs) to get your marriage license And what if you were forced to have this test and you ended up with a false positive or maybe even worse, a false negative? (laughs) And we tried to make the point that this was not the right approach for public health. It was not the right approach for relationships. And fortunately, that bill never was passed and did not become law. And it was just... Again, it was panic. People wanted to do something, anything, but sometimes the solutions could be worse than the problem almost. That was a real challenge. And another thing is when the ACA was first implemented, 
Affordable Care Act was first implemented back in about 2013, the polarization and politicization were so high. And it was then when I really encountered people that who had 100% of their facts wrong, but they were 100% right <laughs> because it was an article of faith. They knew they were right. And when I was reflecting on this today, it really hit me about the parallels with COVID. So a couple things we've learned in, in that process, and we worked hard at it, was that how do you convince people when they're already convinced of wrong information? And what we really found out was that health application assisters, navigators, certified application counselors, community health workers, these people that lived in the community and were neighbors and had family in the community were effective in getting past the rumors and getting people to listen, not in every case, but in many cases. Unfortunately, it's a very high touch, low volume process, but it seems that experts, talking heads, media couldn't move people that knew they were right because of whatever belief they had about the ACA. So, you know, my takeaway there is, is that change can come, but it's a long, slow process because when people hold beliefs that are not based on fact, but they hold them as an article of faith, there's not a mass media mass method of changing those. Let's think back to the Alan Jerzvig, who is milking a cow. Let's think back to the Debbie McCune Davis, who is working in a restaurant and who is about to embark on a career in health and politics. What are you going to tell that previous version of yourself about the road ahead? Wow. For me, at that time, I had no idea what I would do, but I knew I wanted to make a difference. And so my advice to someone, even myself at that time, is to try things and find something that you really care about, find your passion. And that feels like an overstated phrase, but in my life, it's made all the difference. If I care about the work I'm doing and I care about the outcome, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like what I'm intended to do. It feels like I'm using my energy in a good way and my capabilities for the betterment of those around me. And that to me was most important. But I'll add to that, always put your family first because they are the support system that helps you thrive and grow. I love what Alan said about his wife and learning from her experience if you have a good partner who believes in the work you're doing and you believe in theirs, I think good things come from that. And so it's really take your time, observe, listen, try things, keep searching until you find the things that you can use your experience and your knowledge, keep learning every day, but always look for that thing where you know in your, in your heart, in your gut, that these are the things that are satisfying and fulfilling to you and make the world that you live in better. Can I say ditto? Debbie, thank you. Because the things that I wrote here are, again, similar to yours. It's that 
like I spoke before about my sense of knowing I wanted to be of service to the community, help. My early political years were about stopping what I felt was an unjust war in Southeast Asia. And as time went on, a couple things that really come to mind is that, you know, life is a journey. It's not a destination. So you better enjoy what you're doing today. Because if you're not enjoying what you're doing today, it ain't going to get better. <laughs> and this idea of trying to obtain a certain portfolio of investment or trying to obtain something that is not deeply meaningful for you, that's not going to bring you satisfaction. I also wrote in this parallel is what Debbie was saying is that learning is a constant. Be curious, but also be generous in your appreciation of people because it's always about family and people more than anything else. I wish I'd learned some of those lessons earlier in life, <laughs> but now when I look back, that's what I'd be telling myself. That's what I'll tell my grandson now that he's old enough to drive a car. <laughs> Final question. Five years from now, I give you, Alan, a phone call and Debbie, I give you a phone call. Where are you when you pick up the phone? Paint a picture. Probably south of Spain, but I will be still in touch with all the people that I've worked with and care about and the partnerships that we built. And I'll be here. Truth, taking escapes is a great part of life, having great adventures. But the truth is, I'm so deeply rooted here. I now have four grandchildren, a, the latest, a almost four-month-old uh, grandson. My kids are here. There's absolutely no reason for me to stop doing things in my community to make it better. I'll continue to invest plenty of energy in, in this place. So you'll either be being a grandmother, continuing to work, or you'll be in the south of Spain somewhere. <laughs> or Italy. I could go there too. <laughs> Sorry, I can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> I'll call you back. Maybe eight hours later. <laughs> uh, Alan, uh, where good. are you when I give you a phone call five years from now? Five years from now, when you call me, I'll be here at my desk in Mesa, Arizona, in the same house, except I sometimes will be in northern Minnesota or sometimes in Colorado. And Depending on how some things go, England, Italy, or the Scandinavian countries, because there is travel in our future, and there's getting out of the hottest part of summer that has become a constant for us. We love Arizona, but just not part of the year. <laughs> Reverse snowbirds. Well, those sound like inspirational futures that await you. Before we leave, any last minute thoughts or words of wisdom that you would want to leave with our audience? History has value. I'm currently reading Hamilton, the really, really long biography. And we may think that we have never faced political disinformation, polarization like we're facing it today, but the divisions and many of the themes that our founders of the American experiment were dealing with are very similar to our experiences today. Misinformation twisting facts completely out of shape to fit preconceived ideas. They're not new inventions. 
they had to print it on a piece of paper and send it out. But they were blogging constantly, trying to sink the other person's ship politically. And we can look at those same themes, apply them to similar things, but also apply them to new things. It is an old cliche, but you know, those who don't understand history are destined to repeat it. And there's good things in history to learn. I like reading history. The last thought is very simple. That change happens. It just may not happen at warp speed, but it happens. And sometimes we do have to balance the pragmatic versus the ideal. And you know what? Having to compromise is not losing. It's moving the ball down the court. And then you can live to re-advocate again. And I would have not believed either of those two statements when I was in college and young, <laughs> because we wanted it all changed right now. But you know what? I look back, I'm glad I was a part of it. Our generation, Debbie, we started some things shaking and moving, and I think we've continued it along. Well, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's been a privilege to work in public health. It wasn't the path I thought I was taking, but I landed here and I couldn't have asked for anything better. And as I always say to people who aren't familiar with public health, you probably don't know much about it because when things go right, you don't notice. It's only when things go wrong. And when things go wrong, I don't know anyone in public health who steps away from the challenge. They really step up, take on the tasks, and are among the most admirable people I have ever met. And so I just, I can't believe how lucky I've been in my life and in my career to be at this point where I can look back and feel like there are a few small things I've done that have made a difference. And that's really and truly all I ever set out to do. Make a difference, leave things better than I found them. Thank you, Debbie McCune Davis and Alan Jersvig, for taking a little time to reflect on your remarkable careers in community health. Without question, your careers have left things better than you found them. Your actions have opened new opportunities to improve public health through health insurance coverage, children's well-being, immunizations, and countless other areas to which you've contributed. Maya Angelou once stated, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you make them feel. Now, I find it hard to believe that future generations may forget your contributions to the field of public health in Arizona, but I know that each of you always exude a friendly warmth, compassion, and an inspiring work ethic that is infectious in the best of ways. We are so very grateful to have shared this time with you, and we wish you all the best in this next chapter. Many thanks to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our podcasts at vitalisthealth.org podcast or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.